Ben, this is kind of awkward. I did the same thing as you. I thought, am I up here at the wrong time? No, that's not true. All right, so good morning, everybody. My name is Eric Tuffensam. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, as you heard Ben say, we're going to continue in our series of Genesis. We're in chapter 39 today. Uh, We're rounding third. Uh, And things kind of get good from here. Like, I'm excited. This is a breath, a breath of fresh air today. We get to see a good guy for once and Joseph. So uh, praise God for that. There are some difficulties here, uh, but we get to see what it looks like when one of God's people is faithful and strong and a man of integrity. So let's go ahead. We're going to read the whole chapter. This is one of those rare chapters in Genesis that you can just read it through and it makes sense. Like, just read it. All right. So my hope is that as we read it together that we get the full, like the big picture of the story, and then I'm going to give you some big picture points, and then we're going to dive into some details and, and really examine the characters of both Potiphar's wife and Joseph. So we're going to read it all through right now. Everybody got your Bibles, your phones, whatever you read on? Okay, good. No answer. All right, so here we go. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been, had been brought down to Egypt... And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So pause real quick. Remember that his brother sold him to the Ishmaelites, sold him into slavery, and then they sold him to Potiphar. So that's what it's talking about. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Think about that blessing that was promised to Abraham for all nations. We're starting to see that happen here. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept me back from anything except you. Because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you think that rebuke helped her? Well, let's keep going. And as soon uh, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. Now, she kept going. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he was in the house to do the work, do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought us among 
He, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came to me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying to her husband, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So she makes this false accusation to everyone around. And then it says, as, as soon as his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Things just got a lot worse. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sound familiar? What I love about this story in this chapter here is that it's a microcosm of the gospel story. I like to use this framework when I think about the big picture of the gospel. Uh, when I preach the gospel to other people, to myself, or when I think about the Bible, I use this framework. Ready? Good, bad, good. It's a very simple framework, but it helps us to see the gospel and to understand it. And whenever I go to share the gospel with somebody, I, I do this. Good. Okay. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God said that everything, everything was good. There was no sin. There was no pain. There was no punishment. There was no judgment. It's complete and perfect fellowship with God. And then Genesis, not long after, Genesis 3. We see that sin came into the world. We see that, that the effects of sin are all throughout the Old Testament and even some in the new, of course, there's evil all throughout the world. But then Matthew hits, and we see Jesus, and we see the, the, the clouds opening to some good news. And all who believe in Christ, who, who lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father as King, this is our good news. Good, bad, good. And then beyond that, we see in Revelation that God is making, through Christ, God is making all things new. So we see that Revelation is really a recreation of the Garden of Eden. Good, bad, good. You see this clearly in this story. And I love that because, well, for one, Michael uh, asked me to preach this. And I'm like, yes, it's kind of simple compared to where we've been. But we saw that with Joseph. God was with him in the beginning. Everything he did succeeded. 
He was doing well. Even though he was a servant or a slave of Potiphar, he was free in that household. And he had power and authority. He went wherever he wanted. I mean, he had God's blessing all around him. And then it happened. Potiphar's wife began to try to seduce him. The downturn started. And then, and then she falsely accused him of attempted rape, which garnered the wrath of her husband Potiphar and prison. And being thrown into prison by a high official uh, whose wife accused you of rape is not going to be a good experience. We don't have a lot of details, but we can assume bad stuff happened and that it was not a pleasant and enjoyable experience to be in prison. So he was here, and then, boom, he's in the valley. We don't know how long this took exactly, but years, not days or weeks, we see a snapshot, this is a summary, but then we see that God was with him even in prison, and he begins to raise him up to a place of power and freedom and authority. Sound like Jesus? It should. So I want to point this out, that this rhythm of good, bad, good is also the rhythm of our lives as Christians. God gives us something good. Even when you're born, everything you have is a gift from God. And then we sin. Other people sin against us. Disasters happen. Bad things happen. Trials and tribulations and persecutions happen. And sometimes we find ourselves at the bottom of the valley. But then God uses that to shape us and form us and to raise us up and to get us out of that pit. This is the Christian life. For some of you, that sucks to hear because maybe you're doing great and I'm telling you that it's not going to be that way all the time. And some of you are at the bottom and you need this hope that God will bring you out. It's like a roller coaster. It's like GPS. And if you're older like me, I'm not old, I guess, older, you remember those original GPS like little boxes that you put on your dashboard and it's like, recalculating route. Remember that, that voice? I mean, I pretty much nailed it. Um, <laughs> but it's like you end up in the wrong spot. Doesn't matter whose fault. Maybe someone cut you off, and now you're off the wrong exit, and you're recalculating route. And, all right, that's the last time I do that ever. Uh, that's what God does to us. There's a reason why we're going like this. It's part of the sanctification process. It's the way that God, uh, that God changes us, that God stretches our faith to understand him. And so we're always somewhere in this cycle, and I want to ask you, uh, just consider this for yourself. Maybe this would be good city group discussion. Um, hint, Cameron. Um, but where are you in this cycle today? Are you experiencing the blessings and the success of God's hand and God's presence on you? Or are you at the bottom and you just don't know where God is? Or are you somewhere in between? Maybe things are trending down or trending up or maybe you've plateaued or maybe you don't even know where you are right now. These are all things to consider. But listen to me, wherever you are, doesn't matter. You can look back at what God has already done and what God has already promised. Think about uh, what Joseph had in his mind, the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and also to him. And he had these two dreams. And uh, 
two chapters ago in chapter 37. And he has all this in his mind to, to stand on, the promises of God. But he also had God's presence with him. So look back, but look at God's promise. You can also look forward to the future promises of God. God will do what he's promised. And we will eventually end up on top. Which leads me to the, my first point. And we're going to see this clearly in Romans 8. We are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Let's just go ahead and read. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who, has, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Jesus is praying for us right now. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? That's Joseph. Think about that. He ran off without his... Okay. Um, or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. These apostles did not have an easy life. They had some serious trials and pain and tribulation. And look what he says. Look, listen to how Paul finishes this. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers... Nor, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you just believe that, now I know we know this as Christians in our heads, but when you can really believe that truth, you can sustain, uh, you'll be sustained through any situation. As Christians, this says we ultimately cannot lose. We know the ending already. We may lose today or tomorrow or the next day. Someone will hurt us. Someone uh, will sin against us. Circumstances will be terrible. Something bad will happen or we'll sin against somebody else. We'll make a mess of things. But in the end, we will ultimately win with God's help. This is what it says. This is, this is a fact. And we see that in Joseph's life. So I want you to be encouraged, brothers and sisters. This promise of God in, in Romans 8 that we see played out in Genesis 39, this is for all of you who trust in Christ. Now, we're going to dig into some of the nitty-gritty here. I'm going to look at Potiphar's wife. Um, I would call her, she, she's a manipulating, adulterous, deceiver of a wife like she's not good all right um, and all throughout Genesis we've seen these type of characters typically men who have been deceptive and manipulative 
and who have done just drastically terrible things to get what they want, even God's people like Cain and uh, then we see the line of Abraham and, and Jacob and Isaac and, and Joseph's brothers. All of them are doing these deceitful, manipulative things off and on. But now we see a woman who is not a part of Israel, but she's deceiving in, in a way that, that has drastic consequences. And ironically, she's deceiving Joseph, who's from the line of Jacob, also known as the deceiver. So it kind of, the tables have turned. And so, uh, even though Joseph didn't do anything wrong, he does have a, a past uh, of, of a deceiving family. So, what does she do? She demanded Joseph, and she demanded him over and over and over, day after day. Verse 10, she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her to lie uh, beside her or to be with her. And she did that even though he pointed out the, the sheer wickedness of such a thing. She had uh, no conscience. But I want to point out that this, this uh, repetition can be a powerful tool of manipulation. Manipulators love to wear people down. Wear them down over and over and over and over. Think about advertising. I mean, really, that's manipulation, right? Um, and... The same thing over and over and over to the point that you don't even know that you know that you need this thing, but it's just been ingrained into your mind. And listen, when she didn't get what she wanted, what'd she do? Well, first she tried to take it physically. She grabbed Joseph by the garment. She went one step further, and then he was like, nope, I'm out of here. And then as soon as, as soon as he left, immediately, look at the wording here in, in verse 13. As soon as, she, I'll read it here in a second, but she immediately called people around to tell the story. So verse, verse 13 of Genesis 39, it says, And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, boom, door shut, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See? He's brought, us, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. So not only did she immediately get other people involved and, and pull these men into her story, she, she played the victim. She was the woman in distress. Now, women in, in pain and distress can get a bunch of people around them, a bunch of men on their side, and this can be a good thing when they're telling the truth. When men have a true desire to, to protect someone who's more vulnerable, this is a good thing. But at the hands of a manipulator, it is a terrible thing. Because now she's got a whole team involved and they don't even know what they're involved in. And how does she get them? How does she suck them into this scheme? She says, he came to laugh at us. She tells them, you're a victim also. Can you believe he did this to us? So that inspires their anger. And they're like, oh man, what a jerk. He did this to us. You know, and they feel like they're all a part of this one thing. And then what's going to happen? So her husband comes home. She has the, the garment, remember? It's just sitting there. She's just waiting like, hey honey. You know, it's like, as soon as he walks in, she tells a story. Listen, manipulators love 
to be the first to tell the story. And the sooner and the more people they can tell it to, the better. Because they're controlling the story. Think about politicians. Uh, No offense in general to anybody here who's a politician. But... As soon as, as soon as you hear a press release about something, you're like, uh-oh. So before the scandal hits, let's get it out there, right? Let's get our side of the story out there. Uh, let's, let's control the story. This is a tool of manipulation. Um, what was happening is what we might call gaslighting. And there, there's basically she has created this false narrative, and she's gotten a bunch of people involved, and she's convinced Everyone, except for Joseph, of course, who knows the truth, of a different reality than what's really happened. It's like when some, you go to somebody and say, hey, you did this thing, and you know, I think it's wrong, and, you know, and I, I just wanted to point it out to you. And then all of a sudden, by the end of this conversation, you're the one who was wrong. And you're like, wait a second, what just happened there? And the whole thing was flipped back on you. That's called gaslighting. Somebody, like, people use this as a tool of manipulation, and that's exactly what she was doing. She got a whole group of people around to do this. And so when, the other thing is, is, is she, uh, she got vindictive too. She was angry. She was mad enough to tell her husband, knowing that this would have dire consequences, and she got him thrown into prison. People hate when you refuse to join them in their sin. They do. When we don't endorse or take part in the sin of the world or when a group of people at the, I don't know, the water cooler or whatever else, people look at us kind of funny and there's a little bit of resentment and they might say, he's a little judgmental or this dude's holier than thou or self-righteous or uh, you believe what the Bible says about sexuality, then you're a bigot. Uh, You're a racist. You don't agree with me? So there's false accusations that Christians will have to endure. It's going to be part of the life of living in a righteous way. Um, Now, we might be guilty of some of those things. Don't discount the fact that if somebody accuses you of something, you are a sinner, and it's possible that you're guilty. And you need to repent and rely on the grace of Christ. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. We're honest with ourselves. But oftentimes, people blame the church. They blame Christians. They say things like, what did Gandhi say? He's like, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like his followers. That's not a direct quote. Like, sure, sure you really love Jesus, but you don't like his bride. Okay. But people blame Christians for, for this anger because we don't agree with them. We don't go along with them. And that's what she did. So, men, very practical here. Beware of Potiphar's wife. wife. She exists in this world, even within Christianity, even within the church. I've known uh, a couple women who have made false accusations against men. It does happen. We have to use discernment. We, there, there's a few things we can do to, to protect ourselves. But if you get this red flag go off on, on your mind, men, and I've had it happen before where there's just something a little flirty or a little weird about a woman, not my wife, and I'm like, hey, honey, something's weird here. I don't know if it means anything. But don't be afraid to see what you see. You might be wrong. You're not judging her, but you might want to keep your distance. Follow your gut in these situations. Um, women. There are deceitful and manipulative, manipulative men um, all over the place. <laughs> I just got to be honest. Um, 
Has anybody here actually like heard the podcast called Dirty John or watched the, the movie or the video on TV? Anybody? One person? Okay, a few other admitted it. That is so interesting. It's a, the podcast, I think, is better. But it's about a man who just comes into a woman's life and everything is perfect. He's got a great job. Every story lines up. He, everything is just so good. And even when she starts to expose things, he can explain it away. And she makes a wreck, or, or he makes a wreck of this woman's life and her family. And it's actually got a really interesting and great ending, although it's terrible at the same time. So Dirty John, look it up on Apple Podcasts, streaming now. Um, but it's interesting to see the way that men can manipulate women. But ladies, be careful. Mr. Wright, something's wrong. Like if somebody's not telling you what their faults are, or they're not being, being honest or something seems off, trust your gut in that, please. Not all creeps seem like creeps. Jeffrey Dahmer was a really likable guy. Like he really was a lot of serial killers and, and I mean, hey, we're going there. Hello, YouTube. But, but they're likable people. We got to use discernment. Don't let their only source of information about themselves be themselves. So we're, we're getting real practical here. Uh, manipulative people, they oftentimes don't have any long-term close friends because people can't stay around them for too long. Um, but get to, know, get to know their family and their friends. Uh, anytime you meet anybody, really, like spending one-on-one -on -one time, especially with the opposite sex, be careful. Use guardrails. Here's another one. We see in, in verse 11, but one day... When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. Think about that. A golden opportunity for her to, to play out this plan. This is why at CTK, we have a rule that men, and, like a, a sing, or a, an unmarried man and woman should not be in this building alone. Period. If there's a meeting that needs to happen, then we... We either meet somewhere in public or we invite somebody else to be in the, the, the building. They, people know that we're meeting. We're trying to protect ourselves, not only from an outward appearance, but from legitimate actions or accusations. In dating relationships, figure out a way to put up some guardrails in your, in your relationship to where you're not always alone by yourselves in a dark room. Like, things happen when there's no accountability. So the point here is that, that Joseph may have seen all this coming. He didn't have anything uh, really that he could have done. He did the right thing. But we have to be discerning. We have to be, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, uh, wise, as serpents, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Let no one deceive you, it says in Ephesians 5, with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, false teachers are master manipulators. This is a warning against false teachers. Be careful. Trust your gut. Involve other people. These are just simple ways to, to be careful of, of these situations. All right, now Joseph, the man of integrity. Integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy. Integrity means that you're one 
person, no matter where you are, who you're with, your morals, your principles, your actions, your desires are the same, even if you're by yourself. This is Joseph. He never took advantage of the authority he had in this household. He could have done so many things. The whole house was basically his, except the wife. And then when she came to him alone each time, he said, no, no. I mean, how hard would that be? Just over and over, a woman throwing herself at you in the privacy of her own room. Nobody else knows it's going to happen. But he loved the Lord and the Lord was with him. He had integrity. He walked in the presence of the Lord. This is what it means in Galatians 6 when it says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So all of us, let us walk by the Spirit. The Lord is with us. The Spirit lives in us. It says it both in Genesis 2, like, or, or Genesis 39.2 and in verse 21, it says, The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So the Lord's with Joseph there. But the Lord was with Joseph, verse 21, and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. That's the same for us, Christians. The Lord is always with us. And so we will have the strength when we're walking by the Spirit to say no to temptation, to use discernment, now, he also gave practical and moral reasons for not caving into her demands. Remember what he said. He refused, it says in verse 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, listen, he's using apologetics here. He says, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept me back uh, kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. So he's making a case morally like, look, hold on. Let me explain this to you. He's appealing to any shed, uh, any tiny little bit, a uh, shred of conscience that she may have left. Does she have any bit of her that would say, oh, good point. Oh, you're right. I mean, it could have all ended right here. He appealed to her, and then beyond that, he proclaimed God's glory to her in the next part. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It didn't matter that she didn't know God. He was proclaiming God. Sometimes I think we're afraid to say anything about Jesus or the gospel because, you know, they don't know anything, you know. We, we shouldn't say this because we're just going to look self-righteous or or, you know, like a goody two-shoes or whatever. And he's just like, no, this is against God, our creator. She's like, I don't care. But he did the right thing. He ran from temptation. He, he, he appealed to God like Jesus in the desert when he was being tempted by Satan. Jesus quoted scripture. Joseph didn't have scripture to quote yet. So he... He, ref he pointed her to God and God's righteousness. And because of that, he was proclaiming the gospel to Potiphar's wife and to those around him. Look at the effect in Genesis chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 3. It says, uh, back in, in the Egyptian household, he says, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that him 
that he did to succeed in his hands. So because of the integrity of Joseph, God is glorified. People around him with the way that he's acting in both good and bad, people see that God is God. Uh, our, our character, our integrity is one of the most powerful uh, apologetics that people can experience. So when I say that, I mean reasons for the faith. But when people see how much you love God above the things that the world has to offer, when people see your integrity, that you're not going to lie or cheat, and your boss wants you to just fudge one number and you say, I'm, I can't do that with a clear conscience. That's a sin against God. Like, I can't do it. They're going to, something's going to happen there. And, and they're going to have trouble sleeping at night at times because they're going to say, what is this this person is doing? So his most powerful witness, I think, might have been to Potiphar's wife. I mean, think about her. She saw this integrity up close and personal. I would think that would weigh on her as her sin and her lies ramp up and become more and more problematic for Joseph and he ends up in prison and she goes down to sleep in her soft and comfy bed why did he refuse me how did he have that kind of strength hopefully that that hopefully that would just stick in her mind and God would use it to soften her heart or over time she forgets it and she hardens her heart it goes one way or the other so listen God is with us even in the valleys God's kingdom goes where we go. No matter where we are, the Lord is with us. His kingdom goes with us. We can trust him in that. Speaking of suffering, I want to read 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, 18 through 25. So this is Joseph in a nutshell. Just think about how this relates. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now think about this. In in any position of authority, let let this apply to you. If you've got a boss or uh, a lawmaker or somebody else, just think about how this might apply to you. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it When you sin and are beaten for it, if you endure. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Think about how Jesus responded. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then ultimately, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." We have been healed. We have God. And sometimes our enemies, we want to fight them. We want to beat them. We want to take them down. Sometimes when we're victimized, we want to fight back and we want to win. And we get equally angry. Listen, 
We might be victimized as Christians, but it never becomes our identity. Jesus was the ultimate victim. He was murdered for no reason, false accusation, on the cross for our sins. Yet, how did he respond to his enemies? He prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. If somebody's been harassing you, if somebody's hurt you, like, you will have extreme amounts of pain when things happen. I mean, we're all going to experience that. And that is, that is normal and that is good. You're crying out for what God really intends to be the reality. And if you're in pain and somebody's hurt you in some way, then that's, that's a good thing. But for the Christian, it's not a forever thing to feel that pain to be in that status of victim it's not it will come to an end one of my favorite stories in the whole bible is in acts chapter 5 the the apostles were preaching the gospel and this is what it says verse 40 and when they that's the authorities had called the apostles they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of jesus and they let them go then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. These guys were literally beaten by the authorities. And when they left, I see the guy, I mean, I just thought of this, but I see a guy doing this on the way up, <laughs> you know, like that thing. They're like, praise the Lord, like they're rejoicing that they, that they suffered for the name. That doesn't sound like somebody who is living perpetually as a victim. This sounds like a more than a conqueror. This is us as Christians. If someone is doing evil to us, they're either lost in need of Jesus, ignorant of the ways that they relate to God and other people, or they're Christians who need to repent. We need to rebuke them in love. They need to repent from the evil that they're doing. Our desire for those who do evil against us should be Number one, their salvation. Pray for those. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. We should care about the salvation of our enemies. Two, we should care about their reconciliation with God, which is part of that, is salvation, and with people. And then three, justice. We should pray for justice. We should seek justice in this world. And ultimately, we should hope and pray that the justice for this enemy falls on Christ because they accepted him and they were forgiven of their sins. That's what we should do. Now, we don't see all that in detail with Joseph, but we see that in detail in the New Testament with Jesus. So I want to give two warnings and then we're done. When it comes to to dealing with with victimhood, whether it's for yourself or for someone else. Again, Joseph was the real victim in this story. He was, I mean, he was treated horribly and he ended up in prison. We don't see all the details, but it was not good. So when we find ourselves there or someone we love there, I want to warn you, don't be too hard and don't be too soft. And this is what I mean. Number one, we can take this message and walk away today and say, we're more than conquerors. Praise the Lord. We always win. Amen. And then as soon as someone's suffering, what the heck? We're more than conquerors. We can dismiss the pain and the legitimate, uh, the, the legitimate victimhood of a person close to us 
We can, we can push away and posture a strong faith for us and ignore our pain. We can act like there's nothing wrong and say, well, as a Christian, we're more than conquerors, so, you know, there's nothing wrong. I'm good. And, and that's a terrible thing. We're supposed to grieve with those who grieve. We're supposed to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Jesus wept when he saw Lazarus was dead and everyone else didn't trust that he could raise him. I mean, Jesus wept and we should weep sometimes with people, for people. So don't become too hard to where uh, this promise just hardens you. This is not for you. This is for God. This is not a way for us to be arrogant and say, oh, I win, Christian, boom. That's not what this promise is for. But don't be too soft either, and this is what I mean. We can become empathetic to the, to the point of becoming pathetic. If we're not careful, victim identity uh, may suck us in to where we live vicariously through the victim status of someone else we can get sucked in and then their victimhood becomes our victimhood we have to be careful not for that not to happen and and i'll give you an illustration let's say someone falls into the water there's a couple ways you can get them out but you instantaneously i'm i'm with them i jump in there's an undertow i jump in and then you realize you can't swim and now you're drowning too so two people are now drowning But all the while, you had a a safety float right next to you with a long rope on it. You could have thrown it in. You could have put one foot in the water. You could have pulled them back in. We are to feel the pain of other people, but we have to keep one foot on the solid promises of God as we do that. We have to keep truth and grace connected together. We have to use discernment. We don't want to victim blame. But we also need to use discernment. Christians, we should be uh, the most discerning of all people. Because we have the Holy Spirit in us, teaching us. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says uh, that, that we ought to um, don't be uh, conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That you will know what is pleasing to the Lord. So don't go too far one way or the other. That's, that's, the, that's the word there. Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, John 7, 24, but judge with right judgment. So we ought to use compassion, which keeps one foot on solid ground of this promise and steps one foot into the pain of other people or even our pain. We should be able to experience pain but still have the gospel as our foundation. So... To conclude, we are more than conquerors in Christ. Amen? God's kingdom goes where we go, even in the lowest points. And as we walk in integrity with God's help, we'll have a clear conscience. Joseph was free in his mind, though he was in prison. He would rather be free in his soul and his mind than free in his body. It's the same with us. We are free in Christ. And when we go this way in integrity, we'll have a clear conscience, a powerful witness, and God's kingdom will expand day by day, month by month, year by year. And no one can stop that from happening.
The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Uh, thank you for what you did through Joseph. There's a lot more to come in Genesis, but just in this one chapter, we see that you were with him. God, remind us. We know it in our heads, but remind us in our hearts that you are with us now. Lord, encourage your people today through this message and through this story. I pray that we would have a, a rock-solid faith that even in the lowest points when it feels impossible to believe, that you help us to believe. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. God, we know that the end for us is secure as your people, that you will complete the good work that you've begun in us. And so I pray that you encourage us with that today, that we would think and pray through this uh, this week. God, help us to have a genuine compassion for those around us who are suffering. Help us to, to reach into the pain of other people, but yet stand solid on this truth that we always win for your kingdom's sake. So God, send us today, as we, as we continue to worship and, and as we go out this week, God, um, I just pray that you would make us uh, people of integrity, people who believe in your promises and trust that your presence is with us and, and that we would be sanctified to better display Christ in the world around us. Thank you that the ending is secure. Jesus, come soon. We love you. We thank you for your power and for your work on the cross for us. I also just want to ask that if anybody here doesn't know you, God, that you would convict them of their sin, that you would bring them to a faith in you, that they would be forgiven and given eternal life and all the promises that you have for your people. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.